Welcome to the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast, an integrative health podcast by Center for New Medicine. We created the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast as an extension of our mission to educate and empower individuals along their health journey. This integrative health podcast will bring you in-depth expert interviews on a plethora of health topics. Tune in bi-weekly for interviews on how to create a non-toxic lifestyle, integrative approaches to treating complex health concerns like diabetes, Lyme's, Hashimoto's, Crohn's, adrenal fatigue, mental, emotional, and spiritual health, cancer prevention, early cancer detection, integrative cancer treatments, and so much more. Through the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast, we hope to provide cutting-edge, science-based information you can use to create a happier and healthier life for you and your loved ones. I'm Leanne, but today we have another guest host, which is our very own Alana Keneally, and she is interviewing Dr. David Zava in today's interview. Dr. David is a researcher and a biochemist who's done a lot of research on female hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testing for them as well as breast cancer. He has an entire book out on breast cancer. So this is a really fun interview because Alana and Dr. Zava cover so many different topics, but really the main focuses are female hormones, how to test them accurately, and why having balanced hormones for women in particular is so critical for optimal wellness. They talk a little bit about breast cancer, and his book is linked below in the show notes. But with that, please enjoy this interview with Alana Keneally and Dr. Zava. Dr. Zava, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, for a lot of people that don't know you, you are one of the smartest guys in the world when it comes to hormones and women's health in general. <laughs> So with that being said, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, how you ended up here, and what you're up to now? Yeah, I, I was thinking this morning how I would answer that kind of a question. And I, and I have to say, it's, uh, I have to download a half a century of what I've done in, you know, since the 70s, early 70s. So it probably is close to a half a century. But um, I decided oh, I have a PhD. I got it from the University of Tennessee. I then went to Texas, did a postdoctoral fellow working in the field of breast cancer and hormones, so estrogen and progesterone and their receptors and how they work at the cell level, and then went to Switzerland and, and was involved in an international breast cancer trial where we looked at anti-estrogens and, and chemotherapy. So a lot of that came back to the United States, worked as in the Cancer Research Institute and, and uh, was running as a lab director of clinical studies to help pathologists and oncologists understand, you know, what's in a what's in a breast tumor and how that relates to response to anti-estrogen and other kinds of therapies. And then from there developed um, actually got a grant in California, in San Leandro, and um, 
the grant was to look at how hormones are affecting the, the incidence of, of breast cancer in, in women. And so I wanted a simple way of being able to look at hormone levels. And so it's hard to get body parts. It's hard to get blood. Um, and so developed saliva assay. So, mm -hmm. so looked at estrogens and progesterone and things of that nature. And so one thing led to another. So I, I, did, I did get that grant um, and then developed a saliva assays. Ended up leaving California and going to uh, Oregon in 1997 and set up uh, my own laboratory where we're looking at hormones. Initially wanted to do that um, for uh, looking at, at hormones in breast cancer patients to basically look at risk for breast cancer, you know, what, what happens to your hormones and then how that is associated with risk. So that was really my impetus for developing the saliva assay to begin with. It wasn't because I wanted to run a business and make money. Mm -hmm. It was really related to um, my lifelong interest, which has been uh, better understanding cancer. And, you know, the, the model was breast cancer. So I've been doing that for a long time now. So we've been in, we've been here. I've had ZRT for uh, probably about 23 years now. So, and lots and lots wow. of studies, clinical studies. I'm working with other people and developing the assays and getting more and more sophisticated with the types of tests that um, mm -hmm. uh, practitioners are asking for and, you know, how that's not only related to risk for breast cancer, but also um, just lifestyle. Yeah. Or just how you feel because mm -hmm. a lot of people, they want to, they want, you know, they start women go into menopause and they say, Oh my gosh, you know, I don't feel well anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I have hot flashes and night sweats and all these other kind of things. And, that's also that's also a period of time when um, women the highest increase in risk for breast cancer occurs. So it starts at age 35 and you know all the way to age age 55. So there's this this steep rise in increase, and it's related to the hormones. So and we can talk about that later. I know you. Yeah. So was saliva your first um, test you developed? Well, I wouldn't say it was the first test I developed. I mean, I was I was running uh, breast cancer prognostic testing on clinical breast cancer samples. So they cut thin sections. I looked under a microscope at whether or not they had receptors. So there were immunoassays for that. And then went on to develop um, assays for the hormones that were floating around in the body that would that would go into the cells that I was looking at under the microscope and and, and uh, bind the receptors and then stimulate the growth or inhibit the growth. And we knew estrogens were more stimulating and progesterone was more inhibitory. So it was, it was really a, what was creating that balance between estrogen and progesterone. Yeah, I think it like a lot of women don't even actually know that. That um, I love when we were talking on the phone how you said that estrogen is the kiss of life and the kiss of death. Like it's it's what we need, and every woman has it, every human has it. Right. But at the same time, um, when it becomes unbalanced, it's it's a risk factor. Correct. And can you explain like why that is? What kind of hormone it is? Yeah, the you know the estradiol is is the angel of life. It is essential. 
I mean, it, in all species that produce estrogen, it, you know, it, it helps in growth. It helps with your, you know, your skin. It helps with your hair. It helps with development of bones. It helps with, with the brain. It helps with everything in your body. So it's really important. So when you move into menopause, your estrogen goes down and that becomes problematic. You lose bone real fast. You know, you, your brain will age faster. You, all sorts of things go wrong. So, um, and progesterone is the balancer. Progesterone mm -hmm. keeps the estrogen from being overstimulating in the body. The estrogen is going to replenish, you know, the, the tissues that are getting old. So, uh, and it does that throughout your, your reproductive life. Um, you know, you know, when, when you get pregnant, um, but people often say, wow, look at that pregnancy glow. Well, there's two hormones that are really high during pregnancy is estradiol is really high. And so is progesterone. So it's, that's a part of that pregnancy glow for the skin, for the hair, you know, for the benefits to the bone. It's, it's necessary for the fetus to develop properly. So those are those are essential for for life throughout, you know, a woman's life. And most animal species will uh, once they once they go into what would be their menopause, they die. Uh, humans mm -hmm. have managed to, you know, move past that, but still, you know, you can get, you can get faster bone loss. You know, your skin ages faster when you, you know, you get to a certain age, you get arthritis, you get all sorts of things. You can't think as fast and, you know, as good as you could when you were premenopausal or, or for males, it's the same thing. It's just, it's just that, our slope is slower with women. The slope is fast at menopause. The estrogen drops fast. With men, we we drop relatively slow with regard to the testosterone. So you think of women with estrogen and men with testosterone. So we actually make more estrogen in our brain because we convert the testosterone to estradiol. So we don't get hot flashes until... You know, we get maybe cancer, prostate cancer, and then they, they use therapies to reduce the amount of testosterone. So if testosterone gets too low, then, you know, guys are going to get hot flashes and night sweat mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. so. And do you think all of those symptoms that women go through as their age, is that a function of all the hormones decreasing or just estrogen and progesterone? Oh, it's all the hormones. Yeah. And, and that's the reason that, you know, we started... Uh, I started with doing, you know, estradiol and progesterone and everybody wants to know, well, what about testosterone? You know, I got too much, you know, if a woman's got too much, you know, she gets excessive uh, hair growth. Um, she can lose hair on her head, you know, like guys, if she's genetically programmed like her father, you know, to lose hair, she can start, you know, having some hair issues, balding, uh, which is not something most women like. Um, and um, then there was then there was the issue of stress, which it's like, who isn't today? Who isn't mm -hmm. stressed today? You know, we're, we're all contained in our own, you know, self-imposed prisons. Basically, mm -hmm. most people are are, mm -hmm. you know, isolating because of COVID. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, stress. Stress is, is clearly, you know, all the literature that that I was reading over the last 30 years was Okay, stress is a factor. It's probably the last thing that of the domino effect that that leads to cancer. It's and it's really kind of a stress that you don't have control over. 
like of mm-hmm. it. If you don't have control mm-hmm. over it, it could be death of a loved one, could be a number of different things that are related to that. Those those things, if you study the literature, you realize, okay, that's that's associated with increased risk of so, uh, breast cancer. And so in the book that I wrote with John Lee, we, you know, I put together this diagram. You've probably seen that with all the arrows going towards mm-hmm. estrogen. And it, it's mm-hmm. related to the metabolism of estrogen. And I always say, look, okay, you can say, all right, estrogen's the angel of life. There's no question about that. Physiologic amounts of estrogen balance with progesterone. That's what the book that John Lee and I wrote was all about, making sure that the estrogen is life-giving and balanced with natural progesterone. Um, and people often say, well, well, should I use this my entire life? Well, yeah, my mother did, you know, people I know, you know, they have and they've done really well. Um, but yeah. So, so how is estrogen, um, I mean, how is stress, uh, like, how, like can stress be estrogenic? Well, it's interesting. Uh, stress is going to is going to release catecholamines and cortisol mm-hmm. into the body. Those things are going to cause you to gain weight. How many people do you know that you've seen around you that that have sort of not not been out, not exercised the way they you know they did before and have mm-hmm. gained weight? Mm-hmm. Mostly because of stress issues. I said there's a lot more people that because they're not going to the gym anymore. You know, they're not doing they're not going on walks. They're not doing the kind of things that they normally would do. So they've gained weight. So when you gain weight, the weight, particularly around the waist, is what is what cortisol does. It causes excessive weight gain in the waist. Well, that weight gain in the waist is it it takes estrogen precursors like testosterone and DHEA. And there's a lot of aromatase activity in that right. fat tissue and it converts it into estrogen. So now you've got you've got more fat in the breast, you've got, you know, with regard to breast cancer, so you have more conversion of, of androgens like testosterone and DHEA to uh, estrogens. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the science behind why stress and breast cancer are related. It's 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 related, but it also has to do with with how your immune system works. We've learned a lot from COVID about you know uh, innate and adaptive immune systems and how all these things are going on. Th two, Th one, lymphocytes, and so on and so forth. So those things change also with with excessive cortisol and not enough DHEA in your body. Mm-hmm. So when you're young, your DHA is high, your cortisol is, is normal. Get it on the screen there. So, <laughs> um, so then then as, as you age, the, the DHEA drops relative to the cortisol. It may go up a little bit. So mm-hmm. that's that that changes the TH. It changes the immune system. So, um, yeah. so would you, like if you were aging as a woman, would you take DHEA? Like since it's yeah, decreasing? <laughs> yeah, no, I do. You know, I don't take much. I take five milligrams. It's a small amount, but yeah. I mean, I'm you know I'm I'm busy all the time. I you know run a you know a company of eighty to a hundred people, and and it's stressful. So I so I am I'm measuring my hormone levels. I I've measured my hormone levels more than anybody here. Really? <laughs> yeah. so how often are you measuring your? Uh, yeah, once every week or two weeks. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but I, I do it, you know, sort of sort of as a control 
if mm-hmm. I can see, okay, if I'm if I'm looking the way I looked, you know, the the week before, then things are not changing. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. constantly, I, yeah, I monitor for me a little bit, but I monitor <laughs> as a as kind of a control for yeah. everything because I test everything. I test myself for everything. We have many many different tests, probably. That is so cool. That is yeah. the benefit of, I guess, owning a lab. But um, are you doing saliva when you test? Or are you doing a blood spot? All or what? Are you, you're doing all I of them. I do saliva. I do blood spot. I do urine. Wow. Okay. And so I have a question. Are they all coming back similar? The results? Uh, yes and no. Um, I would say, now you're asking a question about those four different body fluids. And let me explain the four different body fluids. Um, Serum, uh, when hormones are released from the ovaries or adrenal glands, and I'm talking about steroid hormones, things like that, or they could be from the pancreas, the insulins, whatever, they all go into the bloodstream. So they're released into the bloodstream. And for those small molecules like steroids, like estradiol and progesterone and cortisol, testosterone, they, they bind up to binding proteins. For, for estrogens and testosterone, it's called sex hormone binding globulin. So that, and albumin, which is the primary protein in the bloodstream, so they, they bind up. And only about two out of every hundred molecules is actually free. So it can, it, it, it's released into the, out, of the, out of the bloodstream into tissue. So if you had a hundred molecules or hundred picograms per milliliter of estradiol, only two picograms per milliliter actually is gonna move into tissue. Now, with regard to saliva, it goes, so it goes to the capillary beds of the salivary gland, and then it moves through the acinar cells of the, of the salivary gland into saliva. So we spit in a tube. So that's really close to the amount of hormone that's bioavailable. And that's why we do the saliva test because it's real close to the bioavailable. So it's not a hundred molecules that are getting into tissue. It's the, it's the two molecules. So we measure the two picograms per milliliter in saliva. Serum is a hundred, but that sex hormone binding globulin can go up or down. So we don't know, we don't know how much is actually bioavailable. So it's, for the small molecules, the steroids, saliva is the really the best test to use because it'll give you the the amount of hormone that's bioavailable. But on that note, I've read that some hormone researchers believe that there's too many interruptions in the mouth. Like think about everything you eat and you do in the mouth, you know, and they think that it's maybe a good measure of cortisol, but not of really what's going on with the hormones. What do you think that's about that? That's not true. That's not true. The only reason um, it might not be a good way to measure uh, hormones other than cortisol is just simply because the tests are not that good. I mean, we we do extensive testing. We use mass spectrometry. We use immunoassays. That's really where my expertise comes in. Is develop mm-hmm. I've developed all these assays, and we, we yeah. use the most sophisticated methods. And the problem, as I see, and we actually run. Uh, a SPIT program, which is saliva proficiency interlaboratory testing. So we send samples out to all the labs and, mm-hmm. and we see how well they're doing. I can tell you that for estradiol, it's difficult if you're doing a conventional FDA approved kinds of assays 
you're you're not able to get down to the really low concentrations. Mm-hmm. That's true for testosterone too. So we've done special kinds of things. I would say that not all the labs are good at measuring the hormones that are really rare. See, estradiol is its circulating concentration is mm-hmm. is like a thousand to ten thousand times lower than cortisol. So cortisol is mm-hmm. a piece of cake to measure. It's like right. you got a you got a big rock and you put it on a scale and you go, oh, yeah, okay, it weighs you know hundred grams. But uh-huh. but if you're looking at estradiol, you got a you got a little grain of sand and you put it on the scale and the scale says I don't see anything. Interesting. And good. so that's why the FDA approved tests may not be as reliable. They're 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 less reliable over a, and that's just for estradiol over a mm-hmm. physiologic concentration. When you go up in concentration, they're pretty good. It says okay, I can see it now. But in the physiologic range, it's not very good. They can't get any lower than about two picograms per milliliter. Mm-hmm. So they can't go down to 0.5. They can't go down to two to, to zero. And the mm-hmm. problem is that that's the physiologic concentration. Mm-hmm. So they're not good at measuring that. Um, they're set up such that, the, and this gets complicated, you know, it's kind of stuff I do, but it's, yeah. the, it's the matrix that's the problem. So the assay kits are set up with a matrix made of bovine serum albumin and whatever. And um, when you use a standard curve, you say, okay, I can see down that low. But when you get in reality and you put a saliva sample in there at the same time, you make an assumption that mm-hmm. you're measuring the right amount. And there's a, a there's a false signal. And, mm-hmm. and what I, what I tell people, I said, look, you know, what we do is we put a Dolby on it. You know, a Dolby is like a Dolby for, for your stereo is, okay, what a Dolby does is it, it, it removes the static and amplifies the signal. Got it. So, so it does, it basically, so what we do is we extract it. Okay, that's removing the static, the noise, you know, the background, and then we concentrate it, so we increase the signal. So we basically put a Dolby on the estrogen assay that we do, and most of it now we've converted over to mass spec, which is is a lot more sensitive uh, and specific. My other um, concern with saliva is that you're not able, like you said, to measure like insulin and CRP, and and those seem to be like that would be create a paint a really good picture for a patient. But if you're just text, you know testing for estradiol and progesterone and you're not looking at insulin, right. I f- do you think there could be that from a, from a provider perspective, that should be really part of the sample? Well, we do that. Yeah, I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> but that was the only thing with saliva. Yeah, it is, a, yeah it is a limitation. It was the limitation that I was faced with when we only did saliva. I said right. to myself, hey, we've got to be able to measure peptide hormones because the peptide hormones are big. You know, they're huge relative to, you know, um, the small steroid molecules that are made out of cholesterol. Right. So, a, you know, a peptide hormone is big protein. You know, it has a molecular weight of 60,000. You know, the steroid is 300. So it's mm-hmm. huge versus, you know, wow. and those those won't move through the salivary gland. So they can't get through. So it's like, okay, can't use saliva. We can't use the saliva to be able to do this kind of testing. So we have to have an alternative. So serum works fine. We do that in serum, but but it's like, okay, we need a non-invasive, not 
or semi-invasive. So that's when I, I went to the literature and said, hey, a lot of people at NIH are doing all this work on looking at peptide hormones and finger stick. So we started working on finger stick and compared it to serum. You know, we got the same, we have to get the same numbers as you get in serum. So we did that, we did that um, work and saw that, hey, insulin, we can measure insulin, we can measure LH and FSH, we can measure uh, PSA, we can measure C-reactive protein, we can do all sorts of other things in a, in a finger st stick. So, you know, with 12 drops of blood, we can do, you know, 30 tests, 30 mm -hmm. different tests, uh, or different things. And the kind of things that you're talking about, we do all the thyroid with right. a finger stick. So, um, so we have, we have all sorts of, uh, different things that, um, that, that we can, we can look at. And then when it comes for something like a breast cancer biomarkers, would you kind of, is that kind of what you guys are working on? Like, would you feel comfortable with giving a provider like, oh, you should do this, these kind of tests for estradiol? Uh, well, it, you know, if you, if you're looking at a, a perimenopausal woman, and she has a high estrogen and a low progesterone, um, that would be information that says like, look, you know, you have estrogen and she's, and she's got symptoms of estrogen dominance. You've got an issue there. You, you really, that, that means that that woman's body is being overexposed to estrogen, too much estrogen for too long a period of time. But again, it's not so much the estradiol um, there that's the problem, it's the metabolism of the estradiol. You know, we hear about um, uh, LDL cholesterol. It's not LDL cholesterol that's bad. It's the oxidized LDL cholesterol. It's mm -hmm. not estradiol that's bad. It's the oxidized estradiol that's bad. So, so my goal in, a, um, at, in about 2006 was to start looking at estrogen metabolites. So I hired people to come and, and work on that. You smile. So uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I hired people at that time to uh, come in and work on this. And we actually were able to develop the assays. And I, I had known about this because I was, I was one of the grant reviewers for estrogen metabolites as the catechol estrogens. So I had a big stack of grants, you know, that I was given that, you know, I was looking at this and I met Ercole Cavallari and all the, you know, people that originally did this work. We were friends. We were, you know, reviewing together. We lectured together. So this was back in the 90s. Um, and so I knew that that existed. I actually helped him get grants to look at this stuff because uh, I reviewed them. And um, so I knew about that, but but requires a mass spectrometer, and I didn't have the money at the time to do it. So finally, in 2006, I bought one. We started that process of developing assays, and it took about six years before we could actually get that, you know, to the commercial market. And, and that was done in urine. Um, oh, so, and, and to explain, these are the, how the estrogen is metabolizing in your body. Right. So it's, it said, okay, here's, here's where we are. And so around 2012, um, which is now 10 years ago, we were working with a, a Chinese group in order to do these kind of clinical studies and stuff. It's tough. So this was where they actually um, had a group of control and a group of, of women with um, 
breast disease. They didn't know if they had breast cancer or not. And so they took biopsies of nurse healthy controls and they took women with, um, and they, and the women who actually had a, a lesion had a breast cancer in their breast. We got, we got urine from the controls and from the breast cancer patients. They were, they were newly diagnosed. The cancer was not, was not removed at that time. It was still hmm. in uh, her breast. So we got the, we got the urine samples from those mm-hmm. women. So, and, and what we were able to show is that lo and behold, what other people have reported, um, the women with breast cancer had a lot more uh, catechol estrogens in their breast, and excuse me, in their urine. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's happening in the body and the breast tissue and, and they were just making more. So they were, they were, had higher levels than the control group. So some of the control group had, but not as many. It was statistically much more significant in the in the breast cancer groups, and and that's published. Um, so you can look up Zava and breast cancer, and it, it was a Chinese study. So you just couldn't get anybody to do it here. Nobody. I'm curious how many people would be estrogen dominant but have the right pathways, though. So. Well, you can you can tell, and that's that's why we developed and commercialized the the urine test to look at catechol estrogen. So you can see that some women, you know, they make they make a little bit higher levels of estrogen, but they don't convert them. They don't oxidize them to the bad catechol estrogen. So it's mm-hmm. really the four hydroxy estrogen mm-hmm. that is is the bad one. And we know that we know that from the literature, from Erico Cavalieri's work, to the, what we found in these in these breast cancer patients, to what everybody basically has has looked at. And so we realized, all right, this is this is the problem. So um, that's the problem. What's the solution? Well, okay, that's not good that you've got this, but there are things that people can do to reduce the burden. And one is. Just just lower the burden of estrogen because these mm-hmm. generally tend to make too much estrogen, uh, and they convert it into a into a bad estrogen. So, and how how would a woman do that? Well, they can you know they can exercise. I mean, it's all the it's all the stuff Grandma said. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's get out and exercise. Uh, make sure you get plenty of vitamin D. Make sure that if you've got heavy metals in your body, get rid of them. Um, so that, that kind of was a part of everything, a, a, absolutely everything I did and people didn't realize this, all the assays that I was developing from heavy metals to, you know, to insulin, to everything that I was looking at was related to, um, what happens in a, in a breast cancer patient. So, you know, we know that breast cancer patients, um, who have excessive insulin because they're insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. Insulin drives the growth in the absence of estrogen. So you don't want to have, you don't want to be insulin resistant. You don't want to be, you know, one foot in the diabetic camp because you, your insulin's going up and it's going to stimulate the growth of, of, a, of a cancer cell. And we know that we knew that from oncogenes back in the eighties, that mm-hmm. insulin receptor was one of the overexpressed oncogenes so that you got overexpressed insulin receptors on breast cancer cells and you have too much insulin and it comes in and binds it and it's going to it's going to stimulate the growth in the absence of estrogen. So even if you're not estrogen dominant but you have high insulin it still could be an issue for breast cancer. 
it it can be for some people, yes. But most of the time they go hand in hand, high insulin and high estrogen, because you have more fat cells in your body and uh, fat cells. It generally tends to, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because when I work with breast cancer cells in culture, the the level of insulin receptors um, was inversely proportional to the amount of estrogen receptors. So when I looked in Mm -hmm. cells that have a lot of estrogen receptors, they have very little insulin receptor. Why, why would that be? It's they're controlling, you know, each basically controlling each other. So, Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the tissues with a lot of insulin receptor are more, those are more aggressive kinds Mm -hmm. of cancers. So -hmm. they have, you know, those are the, what in the eighties they expressed as, as oncogenes. So, um, Interesting. Yeah. So I guess the insulin has to be kind of it. That and all the hormones kind of have to be harmonized together. They're all working. They do. Beautifully. They do. And it's it's all about staying healthy. So it's like you know you ask what do you do? Okay, you you eat right. You eat green leafy vegetables. You know that you get lots of vitamins. Um, you know, real vitamins that that you can get out of out of foods. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the question of the receptors, and I, I think you can walk through exactly how the receptors play into breast cancer, but one point of confusion is that a PR positive breast cancer, natural progesterone is still beneficial for that. I think you mentioned that in your book. Um, can you explain that? And has has the terminology, is it just confusing? You know, because we have ER positive and we, we readily know estrogen feeds that. Because that's kind of, we already knew that. But when it's PR positive, it seems to not mean the same thing. Well, I mean, that's what I did. You know, when I was working in the, in the field of breast cancer, you know, that's what I did in Switzerland. I, I measured receptors for, mm-hmm. for estrogen and progesterone. So estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor. And, and um, what, we, what we know is that when estrogen comes in and it binds to its receptor, it activates the gene. So it makes sticky protein. It makes new progesterone receptors. Mm-hmm. It makes growth factors. It increases, you know, the receptors for other things that will allow growth to occur. Um, and then when, and then, and this is what happens with each menstrual cycle if they're normal. Uh, in the second half of the cycle, you have the wave of, of progesterone. That's the luteal phase. So the corpus luteum produces progesterone. That then binds to the progesterone receptor that's been activated by estrogen. Mm-hmm. You got to have estrogen to make progesterone receptors. It won't happen otherwise. So now the progesterone is coming into the tissue, binding its receptor. It's telling the estrogen receptor, you, you're good. Mm-hmm. You've done enough. It slows things down. It allows for the differentiation of the, of the uterine lining of the breast tissue. So the breast tissue becomes alveolar type of, of cells. They're differentiated. So, and I explained a long time ago, I explained it to Christian Northrup and she says, oh, that's really a good explanation. I said, it's like a tree. It's like a tree in the spring, you know, its limbs grow and then it leaves. So the leaves come on the tree and then, you know, and then at the end of that cycle, it sheds. Mm -hmm. So a tree goes through a cycle in a, you know, in a year, you know, humans do it 12 times in a year. So all of that occurs. What you don't want happening 
is that the estrogen is there. So it's doing its thing. It's making progesterone receptors. It's, you know, it's stimulating, replenishing. I say I stimulate. It's, it's replenishing the lining of the uterus. It's replenishing cells in your brain. It's replenishing the skin, everything. It's, you know, it's doing its thing that it's supposed to do. And then it, it needs progesterone to allow the differentiation. So if progesterone's not there, the progesterone receptor can stay high. So, but yet the estrogen is continuing because the receptor won't work without, without the progesterone. Mm-hmm. So if I your think that's the crux of the issue too. You can, the receptor does not work with the, in the absence of progesterone. Correct. So that's so what- So you need the progesterone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the estrogen, you know, when I look under a microscope at a, at a, and I saw this hundreds of times, I look under the microscope at a, at a perimenopausal woman. So she's 48 years old. I could tell basically how old someone was under the microscope because their estrogen receptors were low. Cause that's what happens when estrogen goes in, it binds its receptor. It starts to it gets activated. It goes in the nucleus and it processes and it downregulates. It then increases the level of progesterone receptor. So the progesterone is sitting there waiting, going, hey, where's my progesterone? Because I need my progesterone to make the differentiation occur. So as I looked under the microscope, what we saw is those cells that didn't have any progesterone, they had a, they had a, a lowish level of, estro, of estrogen receptor and a high progesterone receptor. Mm-hmm. So people misinterpreted that to say, oh, look, progesterone receptor is high and this tumor is growing fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. You know, it was, it was because there was a lot of estrogen. So, you know, my thoughts were at that time, because we weren't measuring estrogen levels in serum, or in saliva or anything else. We were just looking under the microscope. And I could tell every time I every time I looked at one of these tumors under the microscope with a lower estrogen receptor and a higher progesterone, I knew that that tissue had been exposed to a lot of estrogen because that's exactly the pattern I'd get if I took cells in culture and gave them estrogen. Confusing, right? It's so confusing. The a receptor. Well, it, it's just, it's just, and that's what happens throughout the the cycle. So, perimenopausal women, they make they make erratically lots of estrogen, mm-hmm. but they don't make any progesterone. Now, you know, when I worked in an IVF lab and made babies for a couple of years, um, I kind of wanted to do that to get an idea about natural you know, ways of hormones are produced. Um, and I was interested in, you know, the, the, the embryo and its attachment to the wall of the lining of the uterus. Cause I, I said that that's, that's a lot like a cancer, you know, it's, it's, it's sending out tentacles and to, to, you know, nourish itself. That it becomes a fetus becomes a baby. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then it's excluded. When progesterone goes down, guess what? Boom, pregnancy, you know, you birth. So all of that I, I wanted to understand, but but progesterone is, is necessary for all of this to happen naturally. Uh, and when you become perimenopausal, uh, they always said, you know, the, the, 
the people doing, you know, the in vitro fertilization, they said beyond 40, you know, a baby is a gift from God because mm -hmm. you're just not making enough progesterone, mm -hmm. progesterone to maintain the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. and we know that because, mm -hmm. because, you know, a lot of women can get pregnant, uh, but won't stay pregnant because they don't make enough progesterone. So, and a lot of women today are using progesterone to help maintain, so you know, the pregnancy. The pregnancy. Yeah. So, so that's what's happening all over the body. It's mm -hmm. happening in the breast tissue. The breast tissue and the, and the uterus are receiving a lot of estrogen. So the, so the uterus, the uterine lining is growing too thick. There's bleeding, you know, that's common. You know, mm -hmm. at, at, at perimenopause, you know, probably age 40 on, 40 to 50. It's a perimenopausal uh, issue. So they have uh, much higher incidence of uterine cancer. You know, they have bleeding issues. Uh, so the estrogen goes up, the thyroid goes off, stress, you know, more hot flashes because the estrogen is up. It's down when it goes down. Right. It triggers the hot flashes and things like that. It's so the fluctuation itself that's it's causing the fluctuation. It's not. It's not the relative average level. It's the fact that it's fluctuating rather than it's 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 steady state. And the progesterone, um, what it does is it maintains this more of a steady state level. So the brain's not is not seeing these you know erratic. Um, fluctuations that occur, you know, probably starting at in some women at age thirty-five, some younger than that, but not, that's pretty rare. So, and if you this, were in perimenopause, what would you recommend? Oh, I mean, I'm not a physician; I'm a PhD, but I, I sure work with a lot of physicians. Yeah. <laughs> work with thousands and thousands and thousands of them, and I have you know from from oncologists to gynecologists to mm -hmm. you know. Um, people who just generally treat hormone issues. And I can say that probably one of the best things you can do, you've got to control the estrogen first. Um, you've got to make sure that the estrogen is within a physiologic level. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes difficult in the perimenopause because there's that fluctuation. So one mm -hmm. of the first things you can do is lifestyle management, mm -hmm. get better sleep, eat better, stay away from, you know, too much red meat, um, uh, that's just, you know, it's all the diet stuff. You can take things, you can take, you know, dim, methyl. um, so you can take different things. They're, they're all in the books. Um, yeah. yeah. and you can take these things and that'll reduce your estrogen a bit. And then progesterone is really, you know, one of the best things that people can, can use. And it's really unfortunate that, um, you know, the book that John Lee and I wrote, was related to the use of, of topical progesterone. Mm -hmm. And people don't realize that topical progesterone gets, I mean, this is a whole nother lecture because this is what I write about. Yeah. And that is when you use a topical hormone, it gets in your body. It gets in your body big time, but it does not show up in serum and it does not show up in urine. So you can't measure either one of those. It shows up in saliva, big time in your saliva. So how is it that you put it on your feet and it shows up in saliva if it's not getting in your body? How is it you put it on your feet and it shows up in the end of your finger? How? So, 
Well, it's moving. It's, you know, what I wrote about, you know, I've, the first one of the first papers that really addressed this issue uh, we published in the menopause journal. So I'm a member of the NAMS. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't participate that much, but I want to know what's going on. You know, they do they do good work. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're more inclined to talk about FDA approved drugs, but uh, hormone therapies, but they're natural hormones in that also. So, um, so I'm a member of that. So we submitted and, and had the paper accepted. And then uh, another journal asked me to, well, can you explain that? So my explanation was the only... The only good explanation for it is that when you put a hormone on the surface of your body, it's entirely different from taking it orally or injecting it into your body or even using it as a trochee. Mm-hmm. Um, it, because of the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of, of what we see, um, it almost has to be moving through the lymphatics. It's picked up by the lymphatics and it's, it's, you know, it's carried to tissue. So there's a lot of lymphatics in the salivary gland. There are a lot of lymphatics, you know, in the side of the finger. Why did you guys focus on transdermal progesterone? Why? Mm-hmm. Instead because of... It works. Oh, really? Because it works. Because, it, because it helps. Yeah. I mean, the early studies that we were looking at was, you know, the Taiwanese study um, done by Chang and Delinia. Um, so it's a French Taiwanese study where they applied topical progesterone to the breast and then they actually did biopsies on the breast tissue and they showed that the progesterone was, was significantly lowering the proliferation rate. Wow. Uh, in the bre- in this is humans, this is not animals, this is, we are animals, but, but humans. Um, and Nobody could figure out why that was so. And they said, okay, well, it's a local effect. Well, okay, it could be a local effect. But, um, you know, you could put it on your hands and get the same kind of an effect. You put it on your toes. You can put it on your legs. You get, you know, you. we saw the same thing when we had women um, that had gloves on that put it uh, between their legs, you know, on their thighs. Um and then we measured in saliva. We measured in capillary blood. And it was there. And guess what? It was not in serum. We didn't look at urine, but we knew it wasn't there. I mean, we, I've done tens of thousands of tests hmm. on people on people's urine where they use topical progesterone. It's not there. It's not there. Mm-hmm. And I've done tens of thousands of serum tests where I've looked. It's not there. If I look hmm. at saliva, it's way high. If I look at capillary blood, it's way high. So, and that's very confusing to people, but it's very consistent with what the French study showed. Mm -hmm. And that is if you put, you know, progesterone on the breast, um, it lowers the rate of of cell proliferation of the mammary epithelium. We know that excessive proliferation is you're, you're, you know, you're exposing the DNA to, you know, environmental insults, radiation, you know, any Mm -hmm. kind of bad chemicals you have in your body. So it's, it was just lowering that rate of proliferation. And um, so the idea and the theme of the book was, is that, look, if you use progesterone and you use it topically, you're going to get the best effect in terms of prevention of different things. You know, uh, I, I, I took five milligrams of progesterone and put it on my neck last night. Really? It's a first (laughs) I mean, the, the Germans did studies on on 
topical progesterone and sleep. Mm -hmm. And they showed that, hey, it goes in your brain. You have a glymphatics, you know, you have the whole glim. We're learning more about the glymphatic system because of the coronavirus, because that's how it invades the brain up, you know, through the, um, the glymphatics. So the progesterone's moving the same way. It's right. moving through the, the lymphatic system. Cool. That's awesome. Um, can you explain, take a step back, and there's natural progesterone and then there's synthetic, and what the difference between bioidentical and synthetic is? And you write a lot about in your book and kind of what the use cases are. Yeah, I always say, look, anything that's synthetic and Mother Nature is going to slap you real hard. I don't care whether it's a hormone or something else that's synthetic, all the drugs. There's always, it's always like, you know, I get a, you watch television, you know, you get the, the latest drug that, you know, for whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it's followed by the lawyers, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, have you been using, you know, such and such, you know, call us and we'll, you know, we'll get you, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not, you know, Mother Nature made your body to respond to natural progesterone and estradiol, not synthetic ethanol estradiol, not, you know, Prempro uh, synthetic progestins. First of all, if you, you want to look at progestins, um, you know, the progestins, what, what they found when, you know, in the Women's Health Initiative study is that all of the synthetic progestins had a higher risk for cancer. Mm. They didn't find that for natural progesterone. It didn't have a higher risk. Um, ethanol estradiol, interesting, does not have an increased risk for breast cancer, but um, that's, a, that's, a little bit, that's a little bit different. But it, it has all sorts of other issue. I mean, it's, you know, it's the, the most common estrogen used in birth control. Mm -hmm. The problem with ethanol estradiol is that it activates, you take it orally, it activates the liver to make a lot of SHBG. So mm -hmm. that binds, that binds to, to testosterone as well as estradiol. So it soaks up the natural estrogen. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time. You stop using it. It takes a long time for it to your liver to, it, it has a memory and it'll continue to make the SHBG. And so you'll, if you stop that, then you're going to have a really low level of estradiol and, uh, and uh, testosterone. So it, it, it has a birth control effect because it's lowering your testosterone so low. Right. Um, so why then when we have this perfectly, like this amazing option that replicates what we have in our body with um, natural progesterone and the other natural hormones, why is um, synthetic still in use? Oh, <laughs> for money. this. Okay. Money. No, it's really, I mean, because you can't get a, you can't get a patent on natural progesterone, unless you do something like um, Prometrium. And it, what's shocking to me is there's really nothing on the market for uh, topical progesterone. It's too simple. It's mm -hmm. too, it, you know, there, there are all sorts of people out there that are, you know, manufacturing, you know, natural progesterone and a topical product. There are just an amazing number of companies that mm -hmm. make that. And the FDA is, you know, they're always threatening to do something about it and they never do anything about it. So it's uh, probably good they don't because they get into a lot of issues with with people. 
women. I, I lectured for the FDA one time when I, the guys were talking about topical progesterone. I said, I told them, I said, I wouldn't recommend you do it. You know, they were talking about we got to take this off the market. And I and I, I turned around, I heard him, I turned around and said, you know what, I wouldn't recommend that you do that. You know, because it's, I said, why would you want to do that? So you, you do you find that it's problematic? I said, oh, no, we, we're not getting any complaints at all about it. Hmm. So it's like, okay, well, then why are you, well, because it's, you know, they're using more than we say they should use. Hmm. You're using, you know, 25 or 20 milligrams per dose in the, in the, in the FDA had a, they, they said, okay, we, we're, we don't recommend that you use more than five milligrams per ounce, which is a whole lot lower amount of, uh, per ounce, that's not per, you know, per gram, that's a really small amount. So that's really like nothing, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought, well, that's crazy. So why don't you, you know, why don't you do something and make a, you know, a product that you're happy with that right. has that in it. And, you know, they just haven't. Yeah. They, I mean, it's helped so many women and it's always interesting because I, I hear all the time how much it, it can help someone. So I always wonder why people are so against it when you like just know how many people like use it and benefit from it. I mean, from what you mentioned too, just the breast cancer um, use right. cases. It's incredible. So I don't, you know, that's always a mystery of why, you know, when, when um, something's really kind of benefiting. Yeah, but it's kind of like, but it, but it's also kind of like, don't wait. Mm -hmm. Don't wait until it's too late. You know, you know, be proactive about if things are going off with regard to, you know, understanding, you know, you recognize estrogen dominance because that's, you know, that might go on for years and years and years. And then you get a tumor that's, you know, that's already too big, mm -hmm. you know, to, to treat. It's gone through so many different mutations and it, and it just, it's kind of like, kind of like COVID. It's, um, you know, there are things you can use. I'm not going to talk about them. <laughs> you probably get banned. But one of them starts with the word, with the letter I. Um, and it's, you know, it's not insulin. Um, but those things are, and a lot of these kinds of things are effective early. Mm -hmm. You know, we know those things that inhibit viruses, you know. Uh, phytoalexins. This is this is what plants produce in the outer shell of, of you know the plant to protect it from any kind of a wound, a fungus, or whatever. They make you know phytohormones. They make these things that are really good antioxidants. You know that also um, help kill viruses and fungi and things. And we as humans have since we, you know, forever have consumed them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We consume the whole fruit. We consume the outside. Kercetin, example, mm -hmm. kercetin. You know, in the old days, the Germans, you know, they did studies on kercetin. They were taking grams of it. It was not toxic. Mm -hmm. But it kills, you know, microbes that shouldn't be in our body. Right. So there's, you know, and then you, you know, we, we know more about kercetin now because of, you know, COVID. And how kercetin, you know, works in combination with zinc, mm -hmm. you know, elderberry. So be proactive you know? and everything for. Yeah. So, 
it's it's you know prevent prevent the tumor prevent the viral infection yeah you know, early on i think there's a lot of confusion too because breast cancer tends to happen in your menopausal age during a time when estrogen is supposedly low and so people are like how people don't it, then it, you know it's this paradox that it's it takes a long a lag time it's not really a it's not really a paradox because the tumor once it starts it synthesizes its own estrogen. Mm. So you might not have peripherally a lot of estrogen, but the mechanism, it's in the, it's in the breast cancer book. I explain, you know, so you, you have an increase in aromatase because you have more fat. Uh, you have more sulfatase because, and what that'll do, it'll take estrone sulfate and convert it to estrone. And then you have the enzyme that convert estrone into estradiol. So you have a lot of, of things that manufacture the estrogen. And then you, and then you have, um, you know, if you're exposed to pesticides and all sorts of other things, which we all are to a certain extent, um, you, you're more likely going to make the bad estrogen. And if you have a lot of heavy metals and stuff in your body, then, then that's going to oxidize further to the quinone, which is quinone estrogen, which is going to, is going to lock in covalently to, to DNA and cause a mutation that could lead to cancer. That's basically what it's all about. You have to prevent at each stage. You lower the estrogen burden. You lower the capacity to, you know, to convert the estrogen to a bad estrogen. So, uh, and then, and you can get it to a really bad, I say, look, it's like a little piranha is, is a catechol estrogen. The estrogen quinone, which is, is oxidized catechol estrogen. That's the dangerous one. Hmm. And it's, it's the, it's the estradiol, not the estrone. People have made misconception about, you know, 4-hydroxyestrone being the bad estrogen it's not it's 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 not good but it's not anywhere near as bad as the four four catechol estradiol which is what we measure in urine hmm. and i've worked a lot with uh dr glazer who uh works she was a breast cancer surgeon who now is using testosterone and all different sorts of things for treating yeah. um breast cancers and so we're we're measuring different things, and one of one of her cases was um, someone who had um, the only thing. This is she said this patient has a recurrence of the cancer. I said, well, let's take a look at her. Um, let's take a look at her catechol estrogen. The only all and this is person on aromatase inhibitors, um, and the only estrogen that was high was the four catechol estradiol. Interesting. Not two hydroxy estradiol estrone, not not four hydroxy estrone. It was four hydroxy, and that's what I see. That's generally what I'm looking for. And um, also, we look to see whether or not it is is methylated. So, in general, if you have a lot of four hydroxy estradiol and you can't methylate it, then that's bad. You need to, you need to be able to do something to increase your methylation. I've seen a lot of physicians, you know, who practice that way and they, you know, they, they really reduce the burden because even, you know, if you've had breast cancer, you still need to be doing these things, especially 
need to be doing anything because maybe you have some genetic issue that is not allowing, you know, you're making too much of the, of the oxidized estrogens, the catechol estrogens, and you need to be able to maintain that a fairly low concentration, but not reducing your estradiol level to where it's, you know, you're now, you know, your brain cells are not working right. You're not sleeping right. You're not, you're not feeling well, you're losing bone because you're, you're denied any estrogen whatsoever. Yeah. And that's when people go on the estrogen blockers, when they get breast cancer, they, it, it, it can have such crazy side effects, but sometimes, you know, you yeah. have yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, what, you know, you on one side of it, you're talking about, okay, you're going to lose bone, you're going to, you know, it's going to have effect on your memory, it's going to affect on your skin. I mean, it's everything that's good about estradiol mm-hmm. is going away when you get on to these kinds of therapies. And that's, you know, I, I reviewed grants for those, and I basically told the, the reviewer, I said, this is, I still think this is the way to go. Really? You know, to use these kinds of, you know, I was, you know, because it was, you know, the the aromatase inhibitors were new at that time and everybody was, you know, on that train. Yeah, like tamoxifen. Um, yeah, like- so it, was, it wasn't tamoxifen. Tamoxifen's a bit different than aromatase inhibitors. Aromatase inhibitors prevent your body from making any estrogen. Mm. So um, so you, it, it blocks that aromatase enzyme. So you won't take testosterone and make, estrogen out of it you know it won't convert so it blocks it but your body needs estrogen your bones need estrogen your you know your skin needs estrogen it's not any different than when you were young you know when you see the glow of pregnancy the glow of pregnancy is that's estrogen and progesterone working out right it's all about this balance between the 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 hormones you know it's not 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 either one of them are they're not inherently bad or good it's just that they right. need to be in. But they need to be, as you said, they need they need the balance. Yeah. And it's like you know, I I think about these kind of things. It's it's the balance. It's the you know, it's the light here. If it's the flow of electrons into the light. If you if you increase the flow of electrons through these lights by tenfold, they burn out. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If you had none, we'd be in the dark. Right. Fertilizer, the plant behind you, you know, give it 10 times more fertilizer than, than, um, you know, you're supposed to and watch it. It'll die. It'll do a slow death. You know, if you don't give it any fertilizer, it won't be pretty and green. Right. You know, so it's, it's not any different for humans and their, and their hormones. You, you, you have to know, okay, what's the physiologic level that works. And so, that's, you know, that's really, as I, as I was developing assays for different things, um, I, I wanted, you know, I, I looked, okay, how much does a 20 to 30 year old woman make? Mm-hmm. You don't really want to go higher than that. When mm-hmm. you're measuring the, the fluids of the body, you don't want it to go much higher than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so are your ranges for um, optimal levels the same as other labs or is that unique to you? Uh, I can't speak for other labs, but I know the optimal levels are the levels that are physiologic. Okay. And I'm I'm all about keeping things physiologic because you yeah. get outside of physiologic range. Uh, you know, uh, problem guys they tend to use they're, they're using way way too much testosterone. Really. Um, 
way too much, you know, and I look at, I look at the blood, I look at, you know, at how much they've got. So in their bodies, not every man that uses testosterone, yeah. but most, mm-hmm. uh, they like it because, it, you know, testosterone turns into DHT, turns into androstane dial, which hits the, hits the dopamine receptors, you know, mm-hmm. so that's the chest thumping, you know, I feel good, you know, and I'm going to go climb a mountain. I'm going to do, you know. So they're you know, gonna, overdoing it, most people, when they're taking it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, okay. you know, that's why they do it. That's why, you know, people who, you know. <laughs> testosterone can also convert into estrogen. So is there ever a concern? It can. It can. So, you know, those guys grow breasts. Really? So they don't like that too much, you know. So unless that's what they want to do, and that's fine. But, um but yeah, it'll, it, that's not, that's not natural for, you know, for the male if they're converting. So, you know, we can look at that and we do that all the time, we test a lot of males. Um, so they're, if they're on uh, testosterone and it, that, that occurs more frequently when they get older because mm-hmm. they have more body fat, just getting older, get more body fat. So especially trunkal body fat. Now you're going to be making more estrogen from that testosterone. So, and the interesting thing is the estrogen increases the sex hormone binding globulin. So the so the liver makes more sex hormone binding globulin. Well, that SHBG binds uh, five times higher affinity to testosterone and DHT than it does to estradiol. Hmm. So it soaks up all of the testosterone and it's not bioavailable. Interesting. So the bioavailable testosterone is low. So now you're, and you, and you do that, you drive it that direction. And then the estrogen also downregulates the cellular androgen receptors. So, you know, what DHT normally binds to and activates and, you know, makes for muscles and everything else, it's, you know, what the male's looking for if they're taking that stuff um, or feeling better is it goes in the wrong direction. Hmm. So basically so, you do not want to overdo it on, you know, you know <laughs> it, does, it doesn't, it, it doesn't help. I mean, yeah, you know, you, okay. you can, if you want to look like, you know, a weightlifter who use, you know, they use a lot of anabolic stuff. Mm-hmm. They, you, you look at the old movies. How many people do you see that look like these guys that are, you know, beefed up? They don't exist. Right. You know, you know, the old, old Tarzan and, you know, <laughs> you, you, you didn't see anybody like that, you know, back in, back in the right. old days. When you're doing people. hormone replacement, you definitely just want to keep it at the physiological levels, not, and, and work right. with a provider that understands what that would If you be. want to be healthy for the rest of your life. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's right. what you want to do. Yeah. Because right. otherwise you're, you, you're, you're pushing things. And that's not that, you know, we talked about synthetic hormones, which I'm not crazy about. Um, natural hormones out of balance. Right. Again, it's like, it's like, okay, you're just, you keep, you keep feeding this plant that, that you love and you want to grow too much fertilizer and it burns it out. Right. It just, you, know, you look at it and go, there's just, this plant just doesn't look healthy. Right. So, you know, right. be a, a good thing for, you know, young kids to do. Is to have ten plants and then and then do a you know a tenfold dilution of the fertilizer and see okay look this first woman has the highest concentration of fertilizer is not doing well mm-hmm. the next one is 
is better. And then the one in the middle with just the right amount mm -hmm. is going to be, you know, full blown, full, you know, it's going to do exactly what it's supposed to do. So that's true for minerals, you know, so selenium, for example, um, is essential for a lot of the antioxidants, you know, that, that make our body healthy. But if you take too much selenium, it can kill you. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. So, or make you really sick. Right. So You're so you lucky because you can just test and make sure everything's like at the perfect level all the time. Yeah, no, it's, that's kind of fun because I get a really good deal. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Doesn't cost me this much. Uh, yeah, totally. So what is next for ZRT Labs and kind of your mission in life? I think, you know, it's, it's to continue doing what we're doing. We're, you know, we're, we're working with an awful lot of groups doing research studies uh, with people from, I mean, it's just, everybody's calling us. Everybody wants to look at, you know, hormones. We're working with the National Institutes of Health. We're working with a lot of universities that are doing studies, um, you know, on brain health, uh, autism, uh, PTSD, yeah. lots of, lots and lots of different, different, uh, studies and so I, I'd say that and that's what that's what my goal has always been I do I do the clinical testing and we do I'd say we do a really good job of that because mm -hmm. I'm a stickler about perfection of you know the the test that we do um, but um, I think you know the proof of the pudding is really in does this have some utility in terms of, in terms of, you know, clinical utility, is there something in these results that can help us better understand a disease and and be able to do something about it? You know, example would be breast cancer. So that's been, you know, what I've worked on. It's like, okay, well, we know progesterone is good, but physiologic amounts, not huge amounts. Um, you know the. You know, you know, heavy metals, you know, we test heavy metals. We test, you know, the top four that are we know are bad for you, uh, you know, mercury, lead, cadmium, arsenic. So we look at those. And those are those are linked into breast cancer also. Um, it's like this perfect storm. I love that when you write that in the book, yeah. how it's like this long process of this like storm in the body. It's not one thing. It's kind of just this complete so, yeah so you can say okay well I, I put estrogen in the in the center of it yeah. because it was really it was really all of those things that come into play that affect the metabolism of estrogen which is is life-giving it's the angel of life but if you have excessive mercury you have stress in your life you you know, you're 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 now moving into menopause, and you're making way too much estrogen and not enough progesterone. You're just setting, you know, yourself up for something that's that's going to turn into something you don't like. Right. It could be uterine cancer. It could be breast cancer. It could be, um, you know, the 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 quality of life that you have. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you're going to meetings and you're having hot flashes and sweating bullets, you know, you, that's not, that's not fun. Um, you know, if you're a male and your testosterone is dropping too fast because you're just stressed out, cortisol 
cortisol hits the body and, and really has an enormous negative impact if it's too high. Cortisol is life-giving. Mm-hmm. Our bodies, every morning, we've got to make, you know, cortisol's got to go up and then it slowly comes down. We wouldn't be normal. We didn't, you know, cortisol awakening response is important. Right. We, we in the morning have to make, you know, a good amount of cortisol and then it drops down so we can go to sleep at night. Because if it was high all day long at night, we won't sleep. It's, yeah. It overstimulates the brain. We want that stimulation in the morning so we can wake up and, you know, and get things going. And then it's time for bed. We want our melatonin you know, to, to have the, you know, to be opposite to cortisol. Melatonin comes in at night and it helps repair the body. Mm-hmm. And melatonin, when it's flat, is associated with uh, high risk of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So, it's, yeah. you know, um, the pineal gland is, you know, breast cancer patients don't make much melatonin. Mm-hmm. So, okay, take it, <laughs> you know. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think everything in nature has this like perfect balance of poles, you know? It, it does. It, it's so amazing how, I mean, everything you just mentioned is just is just perfect the way it is, uh, perfectly balanced. Yeah. And it's hard, it's hard to recreate that. Right. But you have to think physiologic. Is that, you know, am I am I getting physiologic amounts? So, you know, you, you can't get a physiologic amount of progesterone in your body by taking it orally. You can't. Because you're because you've got chews it up and and doesn't it doesn't create enough progesterone. With topical you're getting plenty. You're getting you're getting ten times more with ten times less. You can do ten times more with ten milligrams of topical progesterone than you can with hundred milligrams really? of oral progesterone. Yeah. Because I mean you I've, look I've read conflicting things on that. That 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 capsules can be absorbed just as well and so there's there's that's where it's it depends on it depends on you know what what's in the capsule but i mean Mm. i've looked at literally hundreds of thousands of people i got the data and i know i got all the body fluids you know so it's like well you didn't do it in uh you know the problem that that i have with urine is uh with with oral progesterone and topical progesterone. So with oral progesterone, it goes to your gut and then it's metabolized and then it goes, you know, a lot of it goes straight into urine. So your your levels of the metabolite that we look at, which is pregnandiol, are way beyond luteal levels. Right. And that makes it confusing for a provider to try to... Oh, it's totally... It's like, wow, I'm get, they're getting too much. If you look at saliva, it's not there or it's very low concentrations of progesterone there. Um, it goes up real fast and then it comes down real fast within a, an hour or so. So um, that's true. That's true for, you know, what I say for one hormone is true for all. You can, you know, whatever hormone you use topically, be it estradiol, be it progesterone, be it testosterone, be it DHEA. I mean, most people don't realize that, be it cortisol. Guess what? You can go to the, you can go to the, the store and get cortisone, mm-hmm. which is which is our hydrocortisone. That's cortisol. Mm-hmm. You put it on topically; it works exactly the same way. And it's and then you measure your cortisol level; it goes up. Mm-hmm. People don't realize that. You know, the FDA didn't realize because they measured serum, right? Because it doesn't go up in serum, and it doesn't go up in urine. Right. So they they they're like. 
No problem. It it just only has a local effect. Got but it. It's gonna have it's gonna have impact, you know, throughout your body, you know, and you're gonna more than likely get more trunkal body fat because that stimulates the you know deposition of of fat tissue. Got it. And cortisol is meant to be high in the morning and then drop down. If it stays high, then the problem is that it will stimulate the 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 precursors of the fat cells to form fat cells. Hmm. You'll get a you'll get a lot more mid body fat. Interesting. That's the that's the that's the worst kind of body fat. And then the fat cells themselves belly. make estrogen. It's belly. Yes, they'll that 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 fat has a lot of aromatase in it. So androgens come along. They'll convert into estrogens. So that'll that'll then have peripheral effects on your body. That's why. And we measured women who were heavier set. Uh, they definitely had um, more estrogen in their body. It was directly proportional to their weight, hmm. more estrogen. So postmenopausal women who are, are uh, overweight, uh, and, and that's kind of a protective thing too, you know, when mm-hmm. you think about grandma, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they make, more, they make more estrogen. They won't make any progesterone. Um, but if they make just the right amount, they could live to, you know, ripe old age. Yeah. So, and they don't get, you know, they don't get breast because they used to eat, they work in the garden and they eat from the garden and they weren't spraying, you know, pesticides on their food at that time. They were picking, they were picking the bugs off. Right. We always say, um, live like you eat, like you live on a farm, not a factory. So Right. True for, right. I mean, it's just. Yeah. And that, you know, that's another, but the problem is most farms today are, you know, they're, they're sprayed with, you, you want to keep the weeds out. So you use Roundup and you use pesticides and herbicides to, you know, control all of the things in the garden. So. And that can have an impact on your body in general. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can affect you in the long term, affect your immune system, affect your It'd be body. Interesting to see some of those those tests from people that work on farms all day from their, you know, doing acid. Well, I remember a long time ago the one of the when I was in, in Tennessee and doing my doctorate, um, one of my friends was this person who looked at fat tissue in farmers. Mm-hmm. And they're just full of pesticides. You know, if they if they if that's what they did, they sprayed fields with pesticides. I, you know, as a child, my my mother's side of the family had a tobacco farm. Wow. And so it kind of went back. So, you know, as punishment, she used to send me to the work on the tobacco farm <laughs> every summer, which was actually a good experience, but yeah. And I remember my grandmother telling me, she's, we had roses there outside the house, she said, and we had all these aphids on the roses. And they're just full of aphids. And I thought, oh, my God. My grandmother said, you know, we didn't used to have, these roses have been here forever. Uh, we didn't used to have aphids. But once we started spraying, you know, then, then we started getting more you know, bugs that weren't supposed to be on the plants. And I know that when I, as a child, when I was 10 years old, my uncle used to take me through the tobacco fields and we would, um, we do several things that, um, one, we sucker the tobacco. So we take the, you know, the flower off the top so the leaves could grow out and 
and, and mature properly. But we also had to go out and, and take the tobacco worms off the plants. Hmm. So these are great big worms, you know, they were this long and green and that big around. And you had to take them and just break them apart. It was gross. <laughs> but, but they were really they look like they they'd kill you, but um, so but that was before. And then the next few years, it's like, hey, uncle, are we gonna go get the worms and do you know plant the tomatoes and do whatever we need to do on a farm? And he said, no. He said we just spray that stuff now. Really? They spray for the suckers on the you know the flowers that come up, and also spray for the worms and nothing. Hmm. So that's the kind of stuff people are smoking. Yeah, but I guess when you disrupt nature in that way, you have a consequence, like we said. But it made it easier. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, and that's what they do in California. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, they spray everything. And yeah, yeah, I mean, look at you look at you look at the the broccoli. It's like there's no weeds growing in there. Really? It just. It just <laughs> the broccoli. I don't like broccoli. I don't need. <laughs> yeah, it's like how did they get that to happen? Because my garden doesn't grow like that. My garden gets all sorts of weeds and I have to go out there and hoe it. Really? You know? So are you back there eating your own food from your farm? I, 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 it's, it's easy to get organic food up here now. So, you know, I let other people, yeah, I have a, I actually have a farm Cool. and, and we plant stuff and I absolutely do not allow, you know, any kind of pesticides to be used. So we, we have, we have food, but it's not enough to sustain us for, yeah. Well, I guess you know, like, I, I, being knowing everything you know, you're probably more careful with everything you do. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, no, you know, roundup to you know cut the cut the weeds down. So, you know, by the end of the by the end of the summer, the weeds have you know a lot of them have taken over because you know the green beans are gone and the, you know so you have nothing but pumpkins left for the <laughs> harvest. You know, except for the kids. Eat pumpkin yeah. pie for the the winter. That's <laughs> yeah, just you know making pumpkins. We always we always would bring pumpkins in, and we have a pumpkin carving contest oh, cool. at the lab, so people get oh, creative. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything. Um, I want we need to have you back because you are just an encyclopedia of hormone knowledge, and it's yeah. always interesting to hear your perspective and compare that with other researchers. Um, where can people find you, and what any kind of anything else you want to share? Uh, well, yeah, they can find me. At, they can find me on the internet. I'm, you know, I, <laughs> or I, I talk ZRT about labs online. Yeah, I, I talk so at ZRT you know, lab. Um, so they can find me there and find out, you know, what I'm, what I'm thinking. I, I really, you know, the, the breast cancer book that John Lee and I wrote, which is put a plug in. So that's, that's this book, you know, so there I am right yes. there. So John Lee was the first author, but John and I got together because we, he was, he had, wasn't doing clinical practice anymore. He'd written his first two books and we said, you know, we were we were very interested in the topical progesterone because he had such good luck with that, uh, good results with his patients. And so we said, hey, let's let's uh, let's take my expertise in breast cancer and your expertise in you know clinical medicine and use of progesterone and just let's write a book. 
Yeah. So that's what we did. So the science, the science part of that is mine, you know, the clinical and the nutritional part. Uh, and then Jenny Hopkins, you know, she, she, where, you know, it was rough edges. So, and, and the intro, she did the intro. She did a really good job. Jenny. When are you going to write another book then? It was, it's amazing. It's so good. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I, I am, I am honestly so busy. Really? Okay. I'm so busy with, with development of, you know, things that, that we're doing. We have all sorts of new equipment that we're working with now, mass specs and, mm-hmm. and research stuff. So it's just, I, I don't, right now, I don't have the time. Right. Uh, but no, but thank you so much. And I know a lot of people yeah. don't know you are like behind pioneering a lot of these at-home and behind the use of, you know, treatments for menopause and for breast cancer. It's incredible. Um, right. And I'm a big fan and I love your book and I love your work. And so thank you so much for, have a good day there in Oregon. Okay. All right. right. Sounds good. Have nice a- chatting with you. Bye. All right. Take care.